You're listening to episode 39 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. It's Thanksgiving 1973, Watergate permeates the airwaves, and the sexual revolution has made its way into the suburbs of New Canaan, Connecticut. The Hood family has devolved into ennui, and their neighbours, the Carvers, aren't faring much better. A film that relishes its ensemble, starring an A-list cast, including Kevin Klein, Joan Allen and Sigourney Weaver, and also rising stars such as Christina Ricci, Tobey Maguire and Elijah Wood. Ang Lee directs a film that isn't mere nostalgia, but deals with subjects that may take place 50 years ago, but still leave a sting today. So take a seat as we kickstart our first ever Thanksgiving episode and deep dive this 90s classic by way of 1973. So, two weeks, two 90s movies in a row. We explore the 70s and the 90s so much, I thought, okay... A 90s film <laughs> that is exploring the 70s. It's about damn time we did actually something like that. Something that takes these two decades we've spoken about in reverence in terms of the movies and put them together. You could say we're on brand here, Wayne. We are on brand here. Both of our favourite decades. I think I think at this point, Wayne, it's safe to assume the 70s and the 90s, whatever which way you want to go, <laughs> they're our favourite decades. Would you say at this For point? Us, the 70s were fantastic. The 80s just kind of happened. And then we moved into the 90s, where it all took off again. And we're kind of following on trend. We've had our video nasty month for Halloween. We had Beetlejuice exploring explicitly Halloween. Then we had Viva Vendetta for the 5th of November. And now, Wayne, we have a Thanksgiving film. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think we'd be doing a Thanksgiving film? Because if you would ask me, name a Thanksgiving movie, I don't know how many I would actually think of, like off the top of my head. I could tell you one, Wayne. And it's maybe, maybe my favourite. I think this is tied with my favourite. But for pure fun, pure spectacle, planes, trains and automobiles. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. How did I forget that? How great is that film? Absolutely love that film. Has there ever been a character that has expressed pathos and humour at the the same time as well as John Candy in that film? Is there any wonder Candy was such a national treasure? That scene in the hotel room where... Steve Martin is just unloading on him. The look on Candy's face. It's the pathos, It Wayne. tears me apart watching it every single time. Just the fact that he's trying to hold his emotions in, but they're so close to the surface. When I watch John Candy in a film, I like to think the characters, explicitly in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and this is just conjecture, I have no idea, but I like to think John Candy is that character. There is a pathos. You can see it. It's in the eyes. You know, it, you don't have to be intellectual here, Wayne. When you see John Candy in a performance, it's instinctual. You feel that that is him. And I think John Candy's character in Planes, Trains and Automobiles is John Candy. Yeah, I think so. For me, it's not just that he's a funny man. It's the fact he is a serious, very dramatic actor who just happens to have the gift of the gab, who just happens to also be very funny. That's why that film is so great. It's the film, I think I watch that pretty much every November. I don't know why I didn't remember that. Every single November, I watch that film every year. Yeah. It's, it's a tradition at this point. But Wayne, a sizable portion of our listeners 
at this point in time are from the United States of America. Yeah. So when we say Thanksgiving, they're thinking to themselves, okay, that's routine for us. But they've got to remember, for international listeners, and for us specifically, Thanksgiving doesn't really hold much. There's no tradition behind Thanksgiving. So should we enlighten a little bit for our international listeners, for our British listeners, what Thanksgiving is. It takes place on the last Thursday of every November. And apparently, Wayne, this is just going from internet speculation. This is to give thanks for the blessing of the harvest of the prior year. Yeah. And this is believed to represent 1621. We're going back 1621 for the first Pilgrim's Feast. The, the Pilgrims when they landed in the right. New World. Wayne? Yes. Yeah. Yep. British. <laughs> yes. But like you say, us being British, Thanksgiving is not really... For us... You get November the 5th, and then you move on to Christmas. We don't really have this. I believe in places like Canada, I think Thanksgiving is actually October. It's on a different date, isn't it? It's a different date, but with Thanksgiving in America, last Thursday of November, the only time I did any kind of Thanksgiving celebration, weirdly, was in China, because this pub close to where I work, we're doing a Thanksgiving uh, like Thanksgiving dinner special. Do you know every Thanksgiving, I have a roast dinner and watch planes, trains, and automobiles. Every Thanksgiving. That is an excellent tradition. There you go. <laughs> I think a lot more people should do that. Honestly, that's the kind of thing I would like to do. It's just for fun. I mean, it means nothing to us, really. That's not a disrespectful thing, but it doesn't really mean anything to us, does it? No, not not really. It's not something that holds any kind of historical weight for us, obviously because, yes, it was people from this country going over to America, right. but now it's celebrated as an American tradition. I think, were they not called the Plymouth Pilgrims? Yeah, because I think, uh, I think Plymouth Rock is the object that marks the spot where they landed in the New World. 1620, I think, is when it first happened. So are you saying the Americans have appropriated all our town's <laughs> names? <laughs> well, yes, in much the same way the Australians also did. New York? York? <laughs> yes, it's got New York. Used They're... to be called New Amsterdam. but Did it? Yes, but renamed in honour of uh, yeah the Prince Regent uh, George. So, yes, and it's now called New York City. See, is there any other podcast where you get humour <laughs> and the history? I say, I bet you didn't expect a history lesson listening to us talk about this film, did you? Well, Wayne, it fits narratively with this film, because why, right? Why does the ice storm, Ang Lee's ice storm, why are we discussing Thanksgiving? Well, to me, remember in the 1970s, yes, to bang on again, when you would get, you know, Clint Eastwood films, the Western films, and at that time they were classed, or in hindsight they were classed as revisionist Westerns, Mm. because you started getting the experience of the Native Americans a little more. They weren't just John Wayne, you know, riding into the sunset, killing all them Native Americans. (laughs) There was actually a history to the film now. That's why they're called revisionist Westerns. And I think in many ways the ice storm is exploring Thanksgiving, but would you say, Wayne, it's almost exploring it in a revisionist way. This isn't your rosy, happy families round the table, gathering for fangs. This is very, very different. This is actually the exact opposite of what you said there. This is us really diving deep. And we love a deep dive on this podcast, of course. It's what we're all about. But a real dive into the very opposite of that. Not the rosy, jolly gatherings not people who are happy to come together people who almost feel it's an obligation you could make a parallel with christmas because i know a lot of people i enjoy christmas i know many people who do but i know many people who don't because some people have said it's the time of year you're forced to spend time with people you're supposed to love i guess maybe in america thanksgiving is similar it's almost a prelude to christmas because it's about a month beforehand right I'm a big Christmas fan also, Wayne. Yes, I am. You would think, yes, you know, we've explored Video Nasty Month, we'd be maybe a bit sour, Wayne. <laughs> 
but no, we are we are actually quite a jolly fellows, Wayne. It's strangely, despite covering movies like the Aston, yes, we are still very jolly fellows somehow. We're not antisocial, <laughs> you no. know. You, you, we're not hiding under a cave dwelling here. No, we just look for movies that have lots to talk because it's about. interesting. Absolutely. So revisionist Wayne, I was mentioning westerns there, and I was saying in a, in, a, in a sense. The Ice Storm is revisionist. Okay, and I was thinking of this. When we re-examine Thanksgiving, what is Thanksgiving in the eyes of the international, okay? It's the taking of land from the Native Americans. So how does that thematically fit into this film? I was thinking, hear me out here, just for a second. We don't have to dwell on it, right? This film, if it's explored from the children, for example, or the adults, from this decade, the 70s, it's also the taking of something from them. And I think that's why it's thematically chosen to represent Thanksgiving. Are you saying taking, we're talking about something innocence. like... Innocence. No, yeah, I was going to say innocence, right. not, not something material, the taking of innocence. It's a taking of a generation, it's the taking of innocence, it's a transitional period especially. Mm -hmm. Much like what Oliver Stone explored with Platoon, because what's the tagline of that movie? The first casualty of war is innocence, and the Vietnam War does tie into this film. Book to film adaptations, right? Mm -hmm. So this is based on Rick Moody's 94 novel, mm. The Ice Storm, of course. His second novel, I believe it was. And I, I, you know what? I was such a big fan of The Ice Storm, the film. I went back, read the novel. Big, big fan, Wayne. The novel is great. It's very different, very different. But here's the thing, right? Rick Moody himself, the author, he thinks Ang Lee's film, The Ice Storm, surpasses his work. Mm. Do you hear that often? Because usually it's the other way around, where adaptations are lesser than the novel or the source material. I'll be honest, I have heard that only one other time. Which is that? I think I've brought this up before. One of my favourite movies of all time is Fight Club, based on the Chuck Palahniuk novel. Yes. Similar experience to yours. You loved the Ice Storm so much, it made you read the book. Right. I did the same thing. I read Fight Club. The book is great. I think one of the reasons the film succeeds is very faithful to the book. Big fan of the film, Wayne. Never read the novel. I am a Chuck Polonick fan. Mm. How? What? What? What was? The, what was the difference? If you can articulate in simple terms for people, I think the movie kept things a bit more concise. Fight Club is great for maybe kind of two thirds of it. Then at the end, it kind of trails off. It's almost like it loses focus a bit. For me, the movie is a lot tighter. But like you said before, Chuck Polonick came out and said he does believe the movie is superior. So should we discuss why? Books usually are superior because it's a cliche to say a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's also a cliche to say that the movie is never better than the book. Well, if we're specifically discussing this film, Wayne, Rick Moody's 94 novel, he thinks the film surpasses it because the film is less angsty. And because it's less angsty, it gives more sympathy, more nuance to the parents of the film. Mm -hmm. Because in the book, the parents are very much, you know, they're taken apart. They're solely the blame is on them. It's less of a transitional period, which the book still is. But this film, you know, it caters to a pathos to the parents. You can understand their decisions. Right. So what we're saying is that the film treats the parents kind of like the characters were treated in Welcome to the Dollhouse, the last right. episode, taking bad characters, traditionally bad characters, but fleshing them out, giving them nuance, giving them interesting elements, and therefore making it easier for us to connect to them as human beings. I don't think the parents in this are quite as bad as the mother in Welcome no, to the Dollhouse. No, I'm not quite sure. She was just flout. <laughs> she was just kind of one-dimensionally terrible. She was just awful, yes. Right, as you said, we were talking about film adaptations, and I was kind of, I, th I thought of a few, okay? 
I've not necessarily read the books, but films that have been adapted from books that I'm a big fan of, right? Here's a few. Silver Linings Playbook. Mm-hmm. I loved that film. Did you great did you like it? Great film, yeah. Okay, here's the big one for me. Here's the big one. I absolutely love this film. Top three film for me. Goodfellas. Oh, yes. Uh, based on Wise Guys? Yes. Wise Guys. Did you read the book? Godfellas, fantastic No, no, I've, film, I've not read the books of these, mm-hmm. but I'm saying as a standalone, knowing they're adapted from a source material, mm-hmm. they still, they're Mount Rushmore of cinema. Yeah. Okay, two others, Wayne. A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. How much do you like that film? Love that film. Nobody. I don't think anybody who loves cinema can hate that film. <laughs> and here's one, Wayne. It, it's apropos for us. Train spotting. Yes, train spotting. Very, very different from the film, the book, because I believe the book is written in kind of very lo- kind of local dialect, you could say. Yes, a, a lot very more kind Scottish of way. Yeah, exactly. I don't think our American listeners would have an easy time with the book. No, they wouldn't, because I've flicked through it, and I was like, wow, you would really need to be concentrating to work this out. What's some of your favourites? That was some of my favourites. I mean, there's many, many more of Oh, Wayne, do you know what I just thought at this moment? Yes. Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that was, damn it, I was literally going to say, say that. that? I love because that Because it's not so a direct adaptation, because did you read Heart of Darkness? Wayne, I made it about three quarters of the way through, <laughs> and it's slightly dull. Yeah, slightly I was dull, not yeah. a big fan, so I would say... Because obviously it was just kind of the basis for the film. It wasn't like yes. a direct adaptation. But Apocalypse Now, one of our collective favourite films of Absolutely. all time. Absolutely love that film. I would say there the movie is better than the book. Naysayers be damned. Mm. <laughs> what about Rosemary's Baby? I I used to think, I, I was of the opinion before we were doing this, like everybody says the ad- adaptation is so much worse. And then I was looking at these examples and I was like, actually... You know what? Fucking hell, man. There are so many good adaptations. Exactly. Did you I, not think? Yeah, I think, in fact, uh, with uh, this movie, The Ice Storm, I believe that when they were doing the screenwriting, they said Rick Moody's book was very cinematic. Yeah. And that's why they think it translated so well to the screen. So Ang Lee, this was directed by, written by James Seamus, mm-hmm. who are big collaborators. They've collaborated for, God, how many films? Sense and Sensibility. Uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was another Eat, one. Eat, Drink, Man. I've never seen that one. No, neither have I. Pushing Hands was, I think, the first one we did together. I believe they contributed, collaborated, sorry, on every film from his first one up to uh, Ice Storm. Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain was another huge, one. Huge, huge cult- cultural phenomenon. It was a cultural phenomenon. In fact, yeah. I was just watching like his accept- Oscar-, Oscar acceptance no, were you watching speech that? for that. Yeah. Incredible how humble a man Ang Lee is. A lot of folks saying he's won two Oscars for Best Director and he's still one of the most underrated filmmakers around. Crouching Tiger, Hidden dragon all these films you know what i never knew that there was a man behind them or partially behind them called james seamus that guy needs more credit he did win he did win when this film was released in 97 the best screenwriter at the Cannes film festival Mm -hmm. but it's so funny now here's a different topic and i'm i just want to like lightly tread it just in a few sentences possibly okay how kind of under the carpet or how disrespected in Hollywood, for example, a screenwriter is. You'll hear much about the director, the actors, etc. The screenwriter who is bringing their pathos, bringing their emotion to the written word, which will be the blueprint for their film, even if it's changed by the director, etc. How disrespected, how kind of under the carpet they are within the system. Considering the script is, we'll say, the lifeblood of the movie. Because exactly. without a script, you don't have a movie. I and mean, yeah, we know the big names, things like Aaron Sorkin is one mm. of them, for example. But he also did directing. He was big on the West Wing, things like that. But dudes like James Seamus, they write all these fantastic films. But yeah, you don't associate the movies with them. You associate the movies with the director. 
which you look this is official medium it's appropriate that it's the director's medium okay but there is many people working on this project working on these films and specifically for Ang Lee he said look I'm from Taiwan okay so I am approaching the American sensibility from a third-person perspective. I don't have, I've never grew up in the culture. It's completely alien to me. This is why he stuck to adaptations, Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm, Brookbark Mountain, etc. Because for somebody who's outside the culture, it must be very hard to get within, you know, the, the minutiae of detail. It's like what we've talked about in filmmakers working in America who had, say, a European sensibility. Right. They're bringing this outsider perspective. And that's why I'd say things like, like with Ang Lee, for example, he can see things in the lives of these people that other people can't. He's able to focus on a particular like facets of their life. Because Ang Lee himself has said, I watched an interview, he says, I'm not a technical person and that's not going to change. It's about how you look into emotions. And when we're talking about this film, Wayne, there's specific two parts he said the scene where ben hood kevin klein makes a shocking discovery in the ice followed by the emotional reunion of the hood family on the morning after the storm he said those parts specifically the book moved me at those two points i knew there was a movie there that was essentially what drew him in because if you think of ang lee what do you think about you think of social dramas about people hiding their true selves away they're about repressed emotions right. so looking at a film like this a story like this this is very much an ang lee film very much know, like an ang lee perspective do you know what's crazy wayne right mm. you love this film yeah thought it was a great film anyway absolutely yeah big fan right 18 million it cost do you know how much it brought back it was about eight million wasn't eight it eight million dollars <laughs> how Okay, it lost mo more than half of its budget. Yeah, because even in the 90s, 18 million wasn't a lot, especially when you look at the cast, because it's an ensemble cast. There, there is not a star performance in this. No. The whole cast carry this film. It is made for actors. This is an actor's film. One of the things that Ang Lee gets most consistently praised for is being excellent with actors. And for me, this, yeah, there is not a weak link in this film. The acting is, I'd say, stellar. It's exceptional in this movie. 1997, this film, Wayne, but we're going back to 1973. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is important in 1973? The Watergate scandal. Yeah, we've got Nixon. Uh, there's a news report near the start. We've got Nixon talking about the Watergate scandal, giving his famous I am not a crook speech. We've got the Vietnam War, obviously, going right. on in the background. Right. A time of tumultuous social changes well specifically the watergate scandal it kind of re it refers to a, bu a burglary and illegal wiretapping of the headquarters of the democratic national committee mm -hmm. in the in the watergate complex by members of president nixon's re-election campaign mm -hmm. well if you think about it this is what i was thinking in terms of this time period this is the beginning of the 70s, so we're coming off the 60s. Yes. How much people talk about the 60s in glowing terms. It was the hippie movement. Right. It was the free love movement. For me, this movie taking place at the beginning of the 70s is emblematic of that change in perception, that change in people's attitudes. The best way I could think to sum it up was the 60s was the big Saturday night out. The 70s was like the Sunday morning hangover. Well, what's interesting about, you know, the swinging 60s, let's put it in that way. As they say, look, the 60s was swinging for the rich. But yeah. what happened is those ideals, the sexual revolution, for example, you know, the, the dropout society type of ethos, well, that trickled in the 70s down to the common 
common person. It can trickle down into the middle class. And what you're seeing now is people ill-equipped to deal with those changes. And now you're getting like the, the social norms, the fabric of society is changing so much that now the ordinary family is finding it hard to deal with those changes. Yeah, and it also meant it thematically tied into another book I love, another film I love, great adaptation, Fear and Loathing in Las oh, Vegas. Wait, both a favourite of ours? Yes, both a favourite of ours because what was Hunter S. Thompson talking about throughout that in his, yes. his monologues? He was lamenting the failure of the hippie movement, the decline. And of course, who did Hunter S. Thompson absolutely loathe? Nixon. Richard Nixon. Absolutely hated Nixon. He said it was... He was the absolute like, worst of the American character. Does anybody like Nixon bar Roger Stone? <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, Hunter also hate was it Hubert Humphrey. He says, you people voted for Hubert Humphrey and you killed Jesus. That's one of his best lines in that film. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? You know, you know, as we examine these films and we're like, you know, we're talking 1973. We're talking Nixon. Do you not find, right, how much history repeats itself? You could clearly placate Nixon and put him into Trump, for example. Basically, yes. The cover-ups, the scandals, the stupidity. Mm -hmm. It all becomes one. Do you not think we constantly repeat history? It does, but it's just like with a new gloss of paint. So right. you get this other person, you think he's just as bad as that one, but he's got a new veneer. And in fact, at one point, one of the characters in this film even wears a Nixon mask. It's yes, the same right. bad shit, just with a different disguise, a different facade. Which was a popular culture kind of thing in the 70s, You could, even in Point Break in the early 90s. Yeah, exactly. They were the ex-presidents. Yep. Or, you know, <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever see the Hunter S. Thompson uh, film Where the Buffalo Road? No, the one with that, uh, Bill Murray. Bill Murray no, is I didn't Hunter see that Thompson. One, no. that, would be a, that would be a good episode because it's so under the radar it's quite an interesting film, Wayne, and I think we I think we should toy with that idea there. I think so, yeah. Yeah, everybody let us know. Would you like to see us cover that? I would definitely like to because I'm a big Hunter S. Thompson fan. We all are. Yes, I think that would be a, a, a fascinating topic of discussion. We we like fucking with uh, main, <laughs> the mainstream culture. We, we like subversion. <laughs> Come at us, guys. Exactly. There but, you to, go. but basing it in the early 70s, right. we're talking about a massive cultural shift. You see Nixon, uh, one of the family members is watching Nixon on the TV, absolutely hating him. I thought this film was going to do a thing where the parents and the children almost represent kind of difficult po different political parties like one is republican never states one is it Wayne. no never actually that's what i like it never outright states it it's almost like it's just kind of bubbling below the surface would you class this film right its point of view its ethos as small c conservatism Okay, small c conservatism means you adapt the, the the social norms of conservatism. It doesn't mean you support the, the Conservative Party mm. or the Republican Party. You can well be a Democrat or Labour Party over here, yet still be a small c conservative. So what, like, they're kind of... It's just like little elements of conservatism which are seeping into well, their lives. Well, thematically, do you think it's condemning the sexual revolution? It's condemning this change in culture? And it's saying, look what you're changing into. Look, look what you are becoming. For me, it felt like almost like an overcorrection. Like, right, we did this in the 60s. We need to stop doing that. And we've gone so far the other way. Even things like in this movie, the way the characters are dressed, it's the complete opposite of what you think of when you think of hippies. It's so... It's so conservative, it's so dowdy, it's so plain, it's so boring. So who are our central characters here, Wayne? Our central characters in this film are family. I mean, this is an ensemble piece. There is a couple families, but our central family, Wayne, is the Hoods. 
The Hood family, we have the uh, adults are Ben and Elena Hood. Yep. The children, Paul and Wendy Hood. Right. So if we ever get confused in this episode, <laughs> there is a damn lot of names. There's a lot of characters, lot of characters in, this, yeah. in this film. There is. Also, even just talking about the family, let's start off with the family name. The Hoods. The hood. Right. What do you do with the Hood? You what? put it over yourself. You do you're cloaking your... yourself. You're, you're hiding yourself from the elements. Exactly. So as the film goes on, you realise that the Hood name, it's more than just a name. It's actually kind of representative. It's emblematic of the family themselves. Let's express the family dynamics, right? You said Ben and Elena Hood. Kevin Klein and... Joan Allen. Joan Allen. Oh, wait. Manhunter. Oh, yes, Man, Man. Man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that two films she's been in we've even covered? Our, even our episodes are bleeding into each are other. Bleed, are we bleeding into each other? <laughs> These guys are just covering old ground already. Yeah. 70s, 80s, 90s way. We're, we're going through the decades within our characters, within our actors, actresses. Right, so the family dynamics of this film, would you say it's a generational gap? It's an odd couple situation. There is a family who is fractious. They do not get on. It's not without love. There is no. love there. But they are disguised from one another. They are hidden from one another. They do not understand one another, more importantly. Mm. Do you know what their family life feels like? It's routine. It's that great word, ennui. A lot of this movie is about that. It's ennui. It's the boredom of the kind of... The listlessness. The listlessness, the tired and conventional. Because you have Ben and Elena Hood. They've been married, I think someone says, about 16 or 17 years. How old do you think they are in this film? I couldn't... I can never... Because look, when we watch things back from... I know this is supposed to be the 70s. When we watch back films from the 70s, don't people look much older than they do nowadays. They do look a lot older. Like, you'll think they're 50. No, yeah. now they're 30. Wait. Is it the dress or the haircut? I things think like so. that? I think Just it's a whole the host style of things. The time. I'd say... I'd say they're probably somewhere in their 40s. I think 40s as well, yeah. In the 40s. But like you say, it's not portrayed as a loveless marriage. It's just portrayed as a marriage where the spark is gone. It's routine. It's mundane. Like the father, he's got a job. I'm not exactly sure what it is. He's clearly dissatisfied with his job. And then the mother... She's kind of portrayed as a dissatisfied housewife. Traditional housewife, that's what I was thinking. Do you think, here, here, here let's let's stick on that. Why is she dis- dissatisfied? Well, we're going through this sexual revolution, Wayne. We're going through this cultural change. She is still the housewife. This is upper middle class, would you say? This takes place in New Canaan, Connecticut. Very upper class, very middle class, etc. Okay, conventional, conformity. So they are seeing the changes of society, yet she is still a housewife. Exactly. They're almost presented as relics of the past. Like they've got two children who are kind of moving forward and in a way almost kind of trying to embrace their new lives and embrace the time. These people feel like they're just stuck decades ago, almost in the 50s. Great you mentioned that, right? The art director of this film, he mentioned, okay... The ar- he said the architecture tells a story for the carvers, who is their next door neighbours, who we'll get to, right? Their house is modernist. It's very glass. It's very see-through. But it also represents the fractious nature of the household. But as we're mentioning the hoods, it's more 50s. Their house is more of a 50s style. And what does that suggest? It suggests family. It suggests love. But here's the duality. The house is telling that story. But within that structure is the fractiousness nature of that. So the house and the family in in themselves are complete contradictions. They're almost torn apart. I'm actually really glad you mentioned production design because Mark Friedberg, who was the production designer in this film, when they were scouting locations, they found this house for the hoods. Something you notice, the house has a lot of glass in it. The reason he chose that house is is it gives the impression that the characters are stuck in like a fishbowl. We have a scene at one point where Ben is stood by a window looking out. You think, great, he can see everything that's outside. But 
same when a fish looks outside the bowl but can't get out. So it's like he is trapped in his own house. So we're viewing him. We're viewing his life. He's trapped. And as you said, we're talking about the cultural changer. But these guys are middle-aged already. These people are middle-aged already. But they're still the generation of the 50s. They came of age in the 50s. So their values are almost out now. They are. In fact, the daughter, Wendy, played by Christine Ricci, calls her dad at one point a fascist. Fascist, Straight up calls him a fascist. Do you think think he fits that bill? No, I don't think so, but I think that's the kind of typical reaction to the... I think the the parents are trying to be portrayed as the more kind of authoritarian figures. Like, you'll listen to us, kind of like the president kind of thing. The traditional. But the the kids are... Naturally, the kids are rebelling against them, and this is a term that she's used. I'm guessing she's heard on the telly, because the daughter does watch a lot of TV. So, we mentioned Thanksgiving, Wayne. This film is centred around Thanksgiving, okay... The score of this film, right? You have these white characters, and that's no that's not inconsequential, right? But the soundtrack of this film, pan flutes, very Native American. It's evoking that memory. So you have all these characters, all these, you know, white American characters, for lack of a better word, okay? Mm-hmm. They are going for the through their trials and tribulations, and they're going to be, you know, welcoming in this holiday, Thanksgiving, for example. But the undercurrent of that, the fractious nature, as we, we're referring to, the, the soundtrack to this film, the score of this film, the pan flutes, the uh, evocation of Native American sounds, that's, that's simmering under there, Wayne. This film, as we said, it's about the stealing of something, the taking of something. We can't neglect the Native American aspect, and the soundtrack does not either. Exactly. In fact, Wendy brings this up because we have a scene where they do have sit down and have Thanksgiving dinner. They ask Wendy to say grace. What does she say? She says, oh, look at us. You know, thanks for letting us white people kill the Americans, take the land and kill the Vietnamese as well. Because as we mentioned, the Vietnam War is going on at the time. Obviously, these kids, I'm guessing being portrayed as kind of hippie-ish, they're seen objecting to the Vietnam War, where maybe the parents would support it if they were asked. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Do Possibly. you think? Maybe because they're me- meant to be portrayed as maybe being more conservative. Would you say the children in this film, the teenagers in this film, they represent us in a sense? They represent what came afterwards? What I think is it's the children in this film, they are going out and trying to do things. They're experimenting with things that maybe the parents have done before, but it's like the parents failed to do it. It didn't work out as well for the parents. And I think that has created a bitterness for the parents towards the children, looking at these kids, young kids, going out, having fun, experimenting, just living their lives. And it bothers them because... They can't do that now. They screwed up their chance already. No, no. Do you know? I I, I, I don't know if I... Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that the parents hate it. It's they hate seeing themselves and their kids. Because what is happening is the children are reflecting their parents' behaviour. They are witnessing what their parents do, the affairs, the, you know, the distrust with one another, and they're replicating that within their own lives. Because this film, Wayne, it's a microcosm. Mm-hmm. The, the children are acting out their their parents' behaviour with their own peers. Mm. And that, to the parents, it just really, really riles them up. It really winds them up because, like you say, with the parents, uh, they're seeing a lot of themselves in their children. But this is a new generation now. And you always have that generational thing where, oh, we never, I never did this when I was your age. But that's the passing of time. It's gone to this new generation now. They live a different way. 
you know in Welcome to the Dollhouse, yeah. we mentioned the passing down of trauma, for example. Would you say in this film there is a cyclical nature to the behavior? Would you say, for example, the Hood's children, they're replicating their parents' behavior? Because Ben Hood, played by Kevin Clyde, he's, he's having an affair with Janie Carver, their, yeah. ne- their ne- next-door neighbor. And we see that, and we see explicitly paralleled behavior because Ben and Janie, they're having an affair. On the side of that table is a bottle of vodka, Mm -hmm. specifically a certain brand of bottle of vodka, right? Well, when Wendy is, you know, kind of sexually exploring with, is it Sandy? Sandy, yes. With Sandy. It's in the very same bed that both of their parents are... you know, having an affair, this exact same bottle of vodka is on the bedside table. There is this passing down of trauma, this passing down of experience, this passing down of behaviour. And I think the most important thing to mention with the affair that you mentioned between Ben and Janie Carver is there seems to be no joy in it at all. No. That's what's interesting about this film. You have these characters who are so stuck in these mundane lives, they're going out and trying to do things to maybe rediscover the love of life, but they can't. Even doing things like this, Ben having an affair with the next-door neighbour who's portrayed as more vivacious than his own wife. She's more outgoing, more outwardly, but even that brings him almost no joy. It's like it makes him almost worse. Like It makes him hate himself even more. Even Janie isn't getting much out of it. She's bored by him. She's bored by it, exactly. Because after they, you know, you know, when they have sex, right? But let's not be a bit wrong. I, that, I, think, I think I think I think so. If memory serves, that's what happens. Yeah. But when he gets when he gets <laughs> off of her, yeah, he's mentioning to her golfing. He talks about he golf. talks about golfing and how <laughs> somebody he knows is surpassing him in golfing expertise. And she says, "If I wanted to hear all this, I wouldn't be having an affair." My husband fulfills this point. You are purely sexual, in a sense. Yeah, in fact, in fact at that, he says, oh, yes, yes, we're having an affair. It's a, uh, just a purely sexual relationship. The dude has to essentially give a dictionary definition of what they're doing. Because he's so... He's portrayed as kind of a stuff shirt, isn't he? Like a very awkward, yeah. stuff shirt kind of guy. What do you think of him in this? Kevin Kleins plays him particularly well. It's a strong performance. I rarely see Kevin Klein give a bad performance. I don't think fair. there's anybody in this film, Wayne, who gives a bad performance. I didn't see anybody and think, you know, uh, everybody's good, bar this person. Every single person I there's thought no was There's no weak strong. links in the acting chain in this, but that's what we mentioned earlier, what, uh, what Ang Lee is so good at, getting the best out of his actors. But with Ben Hood, I love how he's portrayed as doing all of these things. He's having this affair. He's trying to keep his kind of house in order and just how kind of how close to the edge he always is. That's what I like about a lot of the characters, how close to the edge they are. Everybody's on the brink of exploding. But how often does it actually explode? Very, they don't. Very rarely. In fact, at one point, uh, Elena and Ben have an argument. Right. And it's like there's very little shouting in the film. I like how it's just aggressive talking. Even their arguments are kind of listless. Even then they can't really summon up that much emotion because there's barely any at all. Do you think that's the upper classness of them? There's Because there's a lot of discussions when they meet each other for, you know, dinner parties, etc. Of they're going to therapy, they're going to couples therapy. Do you think they're almost above exploding? And they think to be urbane, to be erudite, to be educated, that they have to contain this because 
anything else would be untoward. That's, and be- uh, that's what I was going to say. It's almost like, oh no, exploding, having a big argument, having a big fight. That's, below that's us. what lesser people exactly. do. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, at one point, uh, Ben remarks uh, about his wife. He says, the only big fight we've had in years is about whether to go back into couples therapy. <laughs> exactly. Even the topics of their arguments are dull. <laughs> okay, so let's explore that way in couples therapy. Therapy, the explosion of, you know, the mind, for example. This is very much in keeping with the 1970s because what is the 1970s referred to? It's called the me generation. This is where people are exploring self-help, exploring psychology, but what it really came down to, it bred this certain sense of narcissism. Mm-hmm. Malaise and indifference as right. well. Not just like their, the malaise and indifference in their marriage. Again, it kind of epitomizes the time, the me, me, me. People aren't doing things with other people, doing things for other people. It's about, I need this. I want this. I'm going to get this. I've got the bigger car. I've got the better house, etc., etc. So let's explain the Carvers. They're the next door neighbors. This is who Ben's having an affair with, Janie Carver. So they live in this very, this is what I'm saying, this very modernist house, very glass house, very... It's the antithesis of 50s behaviour, for example. It's not colonial. It's not Victorian housing. So Jim Carver is portrayed as this guy who is away all the time. I think he made... Does he make packing peanuts or invented packing peanuts, possibly? <laughs> does he make? Does he invent packing peanuts? Quite prestigious. It's something to do with packing peanuts. Basically, of the four characters, of the four adults, yes. he's the one we spent the less time with. The idea is he's kind of always away on the road, and that's why I'm guessing Janie and Ben are having this affair, because Jim spent... Jim Var- uh, Carver. Carver spends so much time away. But who are they, right? They have got two children, Sandy and Mikey. Mikey's played by Elijah Wood. There's a point in this film when Mikey is, you know, shooting the shit with his younger brother. Jim comes home from, you know, packing peanuts. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm assuming, Wayne. Packing, Inventing packing peanuts. Pa- Inventing packing peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, he opens the bedroom door. He says, I'm home. Mikey says, you are gone. <laughs> so you're getting this very sense that the adults don't have much of a... Uh, part in the children's life is very standoffish yeah what i like about that line is it's not kind of directly expositional it's not you're ne- there's no character that says oh you're never here it's oh you were gone exactly it's like how it just implies the fact that he's barely over there he's almost a non-entity in their lives perfect way perfect there's no indignation it's just there's an absence there's mm-hmm. no anger there's no you know moral outrage it's just oh you were gone i never realized mm-hmm. because to get angry to get riled up about this that would be demonstrate them expressing some kind of emotion but for them it's just it's just complete indifference oh you were gone oh well stuff happened while you were away i guess so this nature of you know the sexual affairs when what do you see this is why are they branching out is it explicitly what we said do you think the sexual revolution you know has passed now from the elites passed from the avant-garde of society the artistic people in the 60s for example and now it's bleeding into the suburbs because new canaan this film is portrayed as a suburban place do you think this is now them struggling or coming to terms with a new cultural shift because we have been experimenting sexual affair away, mm-hmm. with Janie, for example. And we have the kids, you know, we've got Wendy, who she's kind of, she's playing around with both Mikey and Sandy. Yeah, she's not like committed to either of them. She just kind of goes over, she experiments a little bit. She goes to Sandy at one point, they're going to go into the bathroom. It's like, if you show me mine, I'll, if you show me yours, I'll show you mine kind of thing. So it's like the kind of experimenting, but with the children, I feel like it's more it's it's shown as more of an exciting prospect because Ben and Janie's affair, it's completely passionless. It's almost like we actually see them having sex at one point and it doesn't look like either of them are really enjoying it that much. I'm not sure of that, Wayne. Do mm. you think the the children, the teenagers 
Do you think there's an excitement there? I think it's almost perfunctory. They see their parents, they sense this, you know, this turmoil, this, you know, what's simmering beneath the household, and they're purely trying to copy their parents. And by doing that, there's no passion, there's no emotion, it's just purely perfunctory. Because it's like following a trend. Right. Like in these suburban neighbourhoods, oh, I heard Mr and Mrs is having an affair, Mr and Mrs is, or maybe we should try that as well. Almost like it's just the next fad that's passing around. And that's why it's so listless, that's why it's so passionless, because it's just like another thing to try, like another fad that's going to be gone again soon. Which is why I think a lot of this film is mimicry. It's the youths copying the adults, and in turn, the adults are trying to copy the children. Because Elena Benhood's wife in this film, she sees her daughter Wendy cycling by, and she's like, oh, I've never cycled, you know, since I was a kid. Cut to a few scenes later, she's cycling. Earlier in this film, Wendy Hood, she steals something in the pharmacy. It's just like one little thing. But Elena Hood later, unbeknownst to her, she also steals from the same pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned already with the vodka bottles on the bedside cabinets, both when Ben Hood's having an affair and when Wendy Hood's, you know, playing around with Sandy, they're also drunk. It's this passing down of emotion, would you say? I don't know what it is. But what's the important differences between the thefts, the theft that Wendy commits and the one that Elena commits? Wendy takes, I think it's just one thing, she gets away with it. Elena takes a whole bunch of things and she is caught. Were you thinking watching this, is she taking these things with the hope she'll get caught? Is she thinking she gets arrested, she gets charged, the police talk to her, this is some kind of thrill, this is something different? I think it's a thrill sequence. Yeah, or is it just a way of saying, again, the me generation, right? She took a little this thing, she mine. got with it. She tried to take all of this and it didn't work out. It failed. It's an allegorical way. Good point. Fucking good point. I never <laughs> thought of that. It is. It's This is mine. This belongs to me. I'm taking it. And this is what this film is representing. The parents, for example, they're taking what they think is owed to them. This is the tail end of the greatest generation, would you say? Basically, yes. Tail end of the greatest generation. They think, look, this is post-World War II. They've put their, you know, innings in, so to speak. This is mine. I've deserved this. I've earned this. I'm taking it all. Mm-hmm. But they're, now they're finding, no, 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 no. There is consequences to you taking it all. There's the consequences basically inherited from the previous generation. <laughs> so it worked for them, but it didn't work for these people. They are, would you say the characters are kind of burned out? Yes, there's a, there's, there's the adults. A, I think that's I what. Think so. Yeah, I think that's why. And one of the best elements of the film is how they find so little joy in things which should be fun. In going out and having, going to parties, drinking, going to see your friends, spending time with your family, they can't find any pleasure, any joy in any of this. Parties, you say, Wayne? Yes, I did say party. What's 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 one of the central pieces to this film? Would it be a key party? It would be a key party. Well, you're, talk, you're talking swingers. Yes, yeah, swingers. So we're swingers which were not exclusive to the 60s. I, th- I think it's a 70s tradition when it bleeded into the suburbs. It's kind of permeated several different generations. So it's, let, let's explain to people. Let, let's set up this key party. It is a central piece of this film. <laughs> Why are they at a fucking key party, Wayne? Well, they've gone along... Um, uh, ben and Elena have gone to this key party. The idea is... It's at a friend's house. They go along. You have this... Alison John. Alison John, yeah. You have this jar where you put your car keys into it. Right. And the idea is you'll all sit down at the end. A woman will take the keys out of the jar and she will go home with whoever's car it is. Right. I think it's important to stress that before they go to this party, Ben and Helena have an argument. Right. Because Elena has discovered the affair. She's got a strong inkling that there's something going on between Ben and... Yeah. 
and it's not like an overall explosion between Ben and Janie. It's not a big explosion like we said before. Very contained. It's very contained, very understandable. Well, because they're in a little car. It's yep. pouring with rain outside. And it's such an awkward conversation. And what I liked about Joan Allen's performance is she's trying to put a brave face on such a bad situation. And that's almost what hurts her the most. Things have gone so wrong in her life, but she has to, for the sake of keeping up appearances, make it look like there's nothing wrong at all. Did you notice within this key party, Wayne, Alison Janning's house, very, very colonial, very old school. But did you know why they chose that? Because Ang Lee and the production designers, they thought this would be perverse. They thought, okay, we're going to set up this swinging 70s, this, you know, wife swapping, we're gonna, this seediness, the perversity, etc. whatever you want to call it, right? Within this colonial setting, it makes it that more subversive. Mm. What, because they're like dancing, like they're on this. It's almost like kind of dancing on the graves of the previous generations, for example. Like we've come into your country, we've taken over, and now that we're going to be doing this in front of your memories, possibly Wayne, mm. possibly. <laughs> but but Wayne, how does this key party set out? Okay, I think we should set up Wayne for our listeners within this film. There is a reverend in this film, Reverend Edwards. Okay, what did you think of him? He has two pertinent parts in this film, and they're always speaking to Elena. But within this key party, when she sees him at this key party, and she is very confused, she's wondering, why the fuck is the reverend at a key party, a swingers party? Okay, he explains to her, he says, sometimes the shepherd needs the company of the sheep. Also, do you notice the guy had long hair? Do you think he was a kind of carryover from the 60s? Like maybe he was a hippie then and he's just converted and now he's a priest now. Because he is against organised religion. He does state that. Mm. Does he have like his own little like his own little parish? His own little small church community, basically. But did you find him patronising? He was a he little... Quite, I think there's two pivotal scenes. When he sees her earlier in the film and this scene, and he always kind of sounds patronising. He does. He even kind of comes on to her in this scene as well, doesn't Do he? Do well, he comes well, on well, to it's while, while Joan is... While Joan... Uh, sorry, while Elena is just completely wrapped up in her misery here, and he comes on, he, he almost gets a bit close to her. He's going to get a bit touchy-feely with her. Possibly, Wayne, possibly. I don't know what that was trying to suggest. He is obviously representing the new, the new religious, the new whatever you want to term you want to attach to that. Mm -hmm. To me, I didn't think he was that sympathetic. He seems sympathetic, but he always seemed patronising at the same time. Yeah. He does go about things in a very strange way, like the way he talks to Elena. He tries to be hip. I think is when he tries to be kind of hip, for lack of a better term. Well, when he says to her, sometimes the shepherd is the company of the sheep, she says, I'm going to try not to think of the implications of that. She's worried about an ulterior motive, maybe. Maybe. Like, maybe he's not I don't know as, what he means. Maybe he's not as good as he's trying to... I don't know, maybe he, what he means is he does this more often than you would imagine. Well, is Reverend Edwards a swinger? He's a, regu <laughs> he's a regular at these key parties. I think Do you think his say. keys were in that bowl? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> the keys to his bicycle lock. Does God guide him to which keys to go to? I think so. He, tell, he tells him where all the best swingers is that, parties is are. Is that the one, yeah? That's exactly why he's here. Okay. Elaine is on to Ben here at this key party. She's wondering, okay, Ben, I know you're trying to do something dodgy, do something dirty here. You've got your key marked. Janie knows which key to pick. He says, don't be so stupid, it's not that way. Because on their way there, Wayne, to this key party, he does confess, look, we've we've had an affair. Mm -hmm. It's not what you think, it's not some grand scheme, but we've had an affair. But as we said, this story is very contained, nothing explodes. 
after that statement, they go into this key party. You know, she meets Swingin' Edwards. <laughs> she still is not convinced. Ben, he kind of drowns his sorrows. Because did you notice in this film, there is this way of coping with, this coping mechanism of just drinking to oblivion. It's that classic thing that Mad we've seen. Mad men seen him in, We've even seen it in Swingers. I brought this up when a group of the main characters, they go to a party, they walk over and there's a bar. It's essentially free-for-all you just help yourself to booze that's what's in this film because like you say there's vodka on that table next to the bed there's booze everywhere there's booze are plenty at this party it's that trying to escape your life just finding a way out of it by just drowning your sorrows i think the impl- implications in the film swingers was a bit different no, there, Very- there was a bit more joyousness <laughs> attached to that that was a lot more optimistic right this is you're drowning your sorrows you're repressing your emotions you're getting through a hard day it's only a brief res- respite though because that's the thing you get drunk you kind of forget about your problems but the next day not only have you massively hung over but your problems are still there so ben is drinking himself into this kind of oblivion do you know what worst of all as well yeah janie's fucked off with a kid yeah. <laughs> <laughs> somebody brings uh, she got she got the youngest guy, didn't she? Right. Here, here's the thing I, I want to ask you, right? <laughs> yeah. What age do you have to be, Wayne, where you refer to somebody in their 20s as a kid? I am still not there. No, not at Right, because these refer to a, a, a guy who is explicitly looks about 25, but to them they refer to him as the child. Even as a 40-year-old, that would still be a stretch to call right. a 20-year-old a kid. Is it generational, way? I think it's probably a generational thing. But is it using kid in a more, they're less experienced term? Not in terms of age, in terms of experience. No, they explicitly, when that young guy comes with the older woman, they said, such and such has brought, brought her son. <laughs> <laughs> it's not her son. Brought her son right, with her. But they're son. among the first picked, I know, right. because this scene... You'd argue it's one of the most pivotal scenes in the movie. It's the one that really exposes the character's miseries, the character's insecurities, and just the pitiful way they try to deal with their problems. Rather than actually confronting them, it's like they're just trying to avoid them, trying to put them to the back of their minds. I'll try and put this into a thought, because I think this scene, how it ends especially, is the most polemic of the film, right? After they've chose their keys, for example, okay, Ben gets blind drunk, as we've mentioned, you know, free-for-all booze apparently is a thing. Please let us know. <laughs> but he's he essentially goes to the toilet. He's he's toilet bound. He's he's completely pissed, as we'd say over here. Well, Elena, she gets her neighbor Jim's key. So after everybody dissipates, the crowd dissipates. You have Elena and Jim left alone. They're saying, "Okay, what do we do with this evening? It's going to be awkward. We're neighbors, but you know they both go to the car with each other. This is the ice storm coming down." The weather forecast has been terrible. The rain is turning to ice. The ice is immediately turning to, you know, chaos on the ground. Mm-hmm. So they're trapped in their car. We have Elena and Jim, her next door neighbor, Jane, Janie's husband. So what else is going to happen? What's going to perspire there? What happens is they have sex with But I think this is the most pivotal sex scene in the entire film. Okay, Jim, Jim gets on top of Elena doesn't last long, Wade. No. 10 seconds or something. Very, very brief. But, but, but here's where I think this is the most polemic moment of the entire film. Why is it polemic? Why is it making a statement? Because all these adults, they're foregoing the responsibility of their children. They're foregoing all responsibility in a larger sense. And this is what they're kind of driving towards, this kind of short-term thrill. But what is the result of that? It's literally 10 seconds of dissatisfaction. But what's, what's it's caused? It's caused this grey unsteadiness in everybody's life for this 10 seconds yeah it's you're essentially trying to trade what could possibly be 
general long-term happiness, stability for just a 10-second thrill. And the fact it's over so quickly, it's very dissatisfying. I think both of them knew going in they weren't going to get anything out of it. Like you say, it's awkward, they're neighbours. I mean, obviously, Elena's aware that the husband's having an affair, so it's not like she's doing this to get back at him. Right. It's just a kind of this moment that overcomes her. And I was sat there watching the whole thing thinking, is Ben still in the toilet? Ben's still in the damn toilet. He's having a very bad time in there. That must have been, (laughs) Wayne, that was triples. Triples. You never do triples. (laughs) I've no idea. He wasn't measuring. He was just pouring it. I like that that as well. They just pour it straight into the glass. There's no measure. It's just, oh, this will just do. I've drowned the ice now. There was a great visual (laughs) setup in this film, the cracking of ice with that. Yeah. contraption I love that scene yeah because it's very short very very close up and it's ice weight yeah. the ice storm yeah you know a lot of the <laughs> ice that was outside on the trees and the road yes. etc do you know something they used to achieve that effect What's that? hair gel hair gel they used a lot of hair gel to simulate because you see a lot of it's like spikes of ice right. hanging off trees, hanging off branches, etc. Yeah, a lot of it was uh, done using hair gel, which I believe gave it that very slick look. Well, where where, where do they go from this? You, we've set up the key party, but why are they at the key party? It's the you know the doing away of responsibility, and what we see is Mikey. We see. Jim and Janie's son. He's obsessed with molecules, Wayne. Yeah, did you appreciate this? I, I did, actually. I, I, Explain to him why is it there, he's obsessed with molecules. Because it's uh, it's what's it's atmospheric. It's something in the air. So he's always talking about the tiny little things that you can't see. Because he's portrayed as quite a bright kid, like right. a, a sciencey kid. And he's talking about molecules in, the air, uh, molecules in the air. He's talking about the ice storm, how it's a shifting of molecules, and how it causes this effect. So this is someone he brings up quite a lot. Like, the ice storm is quite well foreshadowed in this film. Wayne, do we go back to the old saying? Mm, back, to foreshad- foreshadow- back to foreshadowing. You know how he <laughs> loves a molecule? Yes. Or the lack of molecules? Yeah. And he goes out into this icy world, this breezy world, okay? Because there's a lack of molecules. It's clean. It's sterile. Everything is deadened by this ice storm. Well, he goes sliding down a road, Wayne. Mm-hmm. He goes sliding and sliding on. He stops on a... You know, a roadside barrier. Yeah. Sits on there. There's a storm, Wayne. It's windy. It's icy. Well, he sits there and he comes to his untimely death. Yes. How does he come to his untimely death? It's an electrical cable which has been brought down and it sparks and starts flailing all over the place and it hits the barrier. I didn't originally notice he was sitting on the barrier. I thought he was standing by the road, but he... Because he, he almost notices it. He says, like, it's like, oh, no. It hits the barrier, gives him a massive jolt. There was actually an interesting kind of red herring thrown, uh, red herring thrown in. Would that be his on. red hoodie? No, 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 no <laughs> not, not the red hoodie, actually. Him on the diving board. Because yes. they, they have a pool in their yes. backyard. And he's bouncing on this diving board, which is slippy. And he's constantly losing his balance. And I was tensing up because I thought... I know what's going to happen. We're going to see him later on. He's going to get drunk or something, and he's going to fall and bash his head and die. That's what I thought was going to take his He wasn't life. pissed, Wayne. No, no, he wasn't. He no. just got electrocuted. He just got electrocuted. Which is worse. <laughs> actually worse, yeah. He's yeah. not, not going to sleep that off. But that's him dead lying on the side of the road. So why is this important, Wayne? It's allegorical. It's the death of innocence. It's the result of the me generation. He is dead. He's lying here electrocuted while all, all the other adults are, you know, fucking away with all <laughs> with all the other members of 
this town. The adults are all, you know, co co-inhabitant at the moment. They're all dealing with each other. The children are left on their own. It's the adults completely shirking the responsibility. Exactly. It's them being so selfish. They can only think about their own problems. They've completely forgotten about the children. It's like the children are acting more like adults. The adults are acting more like children without even realizing it. Right. There's I... been a kind of kind of a blurring of the lines between child and adult. Exactly. They've completely crossed over. So would you say this death, would you say it's the result of the, in quotes, me generation's narcissism? I suppose so, Their yeah. self-obsession. Exactly. Because the way it happens in the film, if the parents were there, that would maybe still have happened. But the fact that it's, they weren't there and they weren't around to help. It heightens it. Exactly. They couldn't do anything. So it's it's a hopelessness in a way. Like, this generation is doomed. But who finds him? You know, Ben sobers up, gets in his car. I I, I think he's still over the legal amount yeah, there, Wayne. That must have been some strong black coffee to, have to yeah, sober up in that amount of time. So he comes along his body. Okay. He finds him. He carries him. He takes him to Jim Carver's, which is Mikey's household. Yeah. And when he was carrying him, Wayne, this is Ben Hood, played by Kevin Klein. When he's carrying Mikey home, was there, and this is my opinion... There is a realization of the central character here, Ben Hood, the collective guilt they all carry within this moment. And that the families are back together, they're able to actually share in this. Do you think it's uh, shown to be quite a to be a turning point in all of their lives? Like, I think so. They've seen this happen. Right, okay, we're going to do better from now on. We've lost a child. We can't lose another. We need to get over these problems. We need to sort ourselves out, and we need to move into the future. There's almost a sense of what have we become? What are we chasing? What is it we want in life? Is it Do we want the affair with, you know, the neighbor? Do we want that fleeting, you know... ecstasy or do we want an actual foundation yeah, but again the filmmakers are smart enough not to point that out to us there's no one saying what have we done this is a tragedy it's done i think almost entirely silently i don't know wayne mm. right after that scene when you know they've carried him home there's almost the, in a sense a funeral procession <laughs> yeah. in a sense. right paul ben hood's son who has been off with you know a young girl in in town he comes off the train all his parents are there. His parents are there standing collectively with his younger brother. They greet him off the train. They take him to the car. Ben Hood turns to him, who is sitting in the back seat. He looks at him, gives him a brief smile, turns back to the windscreen, to the driver's wheel. He breaks down. He cries. He knows he's been responsible. He knows what they've done. He knows it is purely their decisions and their choices that have led to this. Which is what I was asking you before. In a sense, is this film small c conservatism? Is it uh, is it admonishing the me generation? Is, is it admonishing these trying to branch out into expressing yourself? Is it saying, look, contain yourself, be the family unit, that is what is known, that is what is safe. I think so, because all the times they've tried not to do that, all the times they've gone selfish, gone me, 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 they've tried to do like kind of outside of what they would usually do, it's been disastrous, and it's ended with this death. So I think it is saying that this was wrong, that they were selfish, and that they've... Yeah, you reap what you sow. So I think they are suffering the consequences of it now. And we haven't mentioned Paul very, uh, no. barely at all. He's almost the most minor of the Hood characters because Paul is studying in New York City. Yeah. So he's not there as much. And do you think that's why he almost seems like a better adjusted individual than 
Wendy is because he doesn't spend as much time. There's not as much influence from the parents because he gets to go away. He's a student. He's living his own life. He only pops back every now and then. Well, Ben, at the start of this film, he's reading the Fantastic Four and he gives this speech where he's expressing that the Fantastic Four in and of themselves are a family in a sense, okay? And in a sense, because they're a family, they're also fractious. Because, so there we're getting the allegorical meaning of the Fantastic Four and the Hood family. Mm, because when you think about family, what do you think? It's the area where you're supposed to be safe, but it's often not. Again, like we talked about in Dollhouse, because Dawn's never happy when she goes back home. Yeah. But when Paul comes back home, he doesn't really enjoy it much either. He's he's kind of at odds with his parents. He gets on with okay with Wendy, but he seems to be often at odds with, odds with his parents. And I believe, is there not a lot more parallels to the Fantastic Four in the book or in the movie? In the movie, it's just kind of a bit of narration. Well, it's the same in a sense. You're getting the same meaning. It's just it lasts longer page after page. You will see copies of dialogue from the comic book, for example, expressed over several pages rather than just, you know, a a paragraph in the film. There is an awkwardness with Paul as well, because when he's at home, he's with Wendy in a room. And rather than saying, can I use the phone, he says, quote, may I operate the telephonic opera apparatus? I think he's just trying to be clever. <laughs> I was going to say, he even talks like that. I think that's just trying to be clever. Yeah. There is an interesting element with him is he's in love with this girl. Uh, Libbits. Libbits. Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes, in her film debut, I believe. Is it a film debut? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah even the parents mentioned, like, what kind of a name is Libbits? I looked up Libet. Libet is like torn or hanging strips. Ooh. I was thinking, is that kind of metaphor? Fractuous, she... torn apart. <laughs> Fractuous, yeah, yeah. There we she... go, eh? Yeah, because he goes to a party at one point. This is kind of the almost the wrapping up of his... only three people. Yeah, he goes to an arc with uh, Libet and his roommate. Stoner. Yeah, <laughs> who's con- who's constantly sleeping with the women he's interested in. Yes. He, should, fo- just sto- he should just stop telling him. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what happens is the roommate and Libet's they get drunk, they take these... Value. This this medicine they found in the cupboard, yeah, and they both pass out, and that's just him left on his own to leave. Did you think that was almost kind of symbolic of the end of the sixties? That's what I was thinking. In metaphorical terms, the party is over. I think now he's leaving. Yeah, that's a good point. I think so. This is the dissatisfaction, as you mentioned before. I think it's the hangover period. These ideas aren't necessarily working out within the context of the film. This was the only thing he wanted, and it's failed for him. It's right. gone downhill. And now all he can really do is go back to his family. Do you find in a lot of 90s films, because it's a 90s film viewing the 70s from a 90s point of view, do you find in the 90s with the Gen X, there is this admonishing of the 70s ideals? Well, they're always portrayed as being very, very stuffy, very conservative, conservative, from the house to the clothes to the cars they drive. Like they went almost completely the other way. Like I said, they overcorrected from the 60s. Right. So it's like looking looking down them as if they were just way too conservative, way too safe. And you could say this gave way to like the video nasty scare of the 80s. I, I see that. I see that. It's one thing leads to another. It doesn't necessarily mean it's for better or for worse. It just is. And at the end of the day, Wayne, that is what you have to accept. This film is very, as we said, made in the 90s, set in the 70s. It's approached visually from a very classical approach. It's very steady. It's very, you know, keen with its pacing, for example. And for me, this film really worked that way. It's paced very well. The ensemble is tremendous. There is not a single weak, weak part of this film. The direction is great. The writing is great. 
I just really like revisiting this film. I like being in the world. I like dealing with the trials and tribulations of the Hood family. Yeah, I, it's good you mentioned the pacing because I know that's what puts a lot of people off. I've read a lot of people say this film is boring purely because it's slow. Dicks. Films can be slow and yes. fascinating. The reason I think this pacing in the film works is because it really makes you feel what it's like to be this family, that grinding, that slow, just boring procession of every single day life. Like You're forced to kind of suffer along with them and you understand where they're coming from. Your first time viewing, tell me. I wanted to introduce this film to you. I knew if you give it the chance, I would think, in, I pretty much would know, for example, knowing your tastes by now, <laughs> knowing your likes, dislikes, I really thought this is a film that Wayne may not have checked out on his own fruition, but he would like it if he was pushed. Now tell me, what did you think? I thought this was fantastic. This was quality cinema, objectively and subjectively, made by people who obviously very clearly knew what they were doing. Like we say, Paul Moody, I believe, cried during the closing credits that he he liked what Ang Lee had done so much. Really, That's just about the highest compliment you can get. Adapting a book and someone saying, you did it better than I did. Like you say, the acting, exceptional. I can't think of anyone who is bad in it at all. Characters are all very different, but all united by very common themes. Just so well made. And the the ice storm being kind of a metaphor in Jay Schneider, uh, Stephen J. Schneider's book, A Thousand and One Movies to See Before You Die, which this film is featured oh, wait, where in. Where is it? Do you know which number? Oh, no, no, it's not ranked. Ah, it's, is it not? No, no it's just done ah, by, okay. it's done by ah, year. Right. Uh, he said, The weather, a deus ex machina, works as another mysterious and deadly force the couples can only handle after it has struck. So it's almost like the storm was the inevitability. I think so. Inevitability of their actions. Wayne, Mm -hmm. polemic, fun, classical, brave, new, and a damn good watch. You've been listening to episode 39 of In Film We Trust. Once again, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. And wherever you are, and however you choose to celebrate it, we both hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.